right, well, good morning. You are stuck with me for one more week. Hope you don't mind. That was a joke, by the way. I'm Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a joy to be uh, back up here and to be back in cha- uh, Acts chapter 16. Uh, it's a great chapter. I'm going to read through our scriptures before we, we get through our content. So if you could flip to Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 25. So read with me. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and all who were, with, who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now, and you can go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. And so they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. The word of the Lord. Jesus, would you please speak to us through your word? I pray we would come trembling before it. Lord, as we hear those words of your scriptures as if it is your very words, just like the words coming from Mount Sinai, Lord, your very voice speaking to us through the scriptures, and may you just help me to walk through this with your church. Lord, we love you so much. We pray this in your name. Amen. So I want to look at, I, um, when I look at passages, you know, I, I always think of kind of like the big life questions, and a lot of times scripture really addresses things on a grand scale, and this is one of the passages where it does just that. I, I want to address this desire that we all have, it's like an innate desire to be something bigger than to be involved in something bigger than ourselves. That if we were like an island and isolated from the rest of the world, the purpose would eventually kind of dwindle away. But we all this, we have this intuitive desire to want to find something that's bigger and greater than ourselves and to be involved in it. Um, just recently, um, Deshaun Kaiser, he was drafted to the Cleveland Browns. Where's my man, Ralph? There he is. 
Um, he said, uh, I don't really watch football that much, but I was just looking at examples of people wanting this, right? So this is what he said after his draft into the Cleveland Browns. He said, uh, representing something a lot bigger than yourself is one concept, but when you are doing it in an international level, with a fan base that truly expands all over the world, it was an honor and a privilege, right? So he's addressing the fact of him not just being involved in himself and a team and also knows that the team has an influence worldwide and he finds some kind of bigger purpose in that kind of grand involvement. Frederick, Frederick Nietzsche, famous philosopher, he said, he that has a why can bear almost any how. I'll say it one more time. He that has a why can bear almost any how. By finding something that's bigger than yourself, you're kind of trying to press on that why question. Because that's kind of deep down inside of us all. That's what we're looking for is that why question. are continually on the hunt for deeper meaning and purpose that extends beyond themselves. We also hear this usually expressed with the term the greater good. Right? Do this or do that for the greater good. Berkeley in California actually has, uh, university has uh, their own magazine called For the Greater Good, in which they explore all the different uh, nuances and uh, things of a life lived for the greater good. Recently, a secular uh, author, Emily Smith, wrote the book The Power of Meaning, Crafting a Life that Matters. And her extensive research showed that we need belonging, purpose, transcendence, and storytelling to find the meaning in our life. And, and, and not just in secular research is this question very apparent, but it can capture our very imaginations. Uh, we see a lot of movies and art dealing with this. Um, you guys remember that movie Signs that came out like 15 years ago, which is crazy to think about. Something to feel old, I guess, these days. 15 years ago, this movie Signs comes out, okay, that explores this. There's a greater story happening. There's a greater narrative happening, and we have a, a part in it that's much larger than ourselves. If you remember, each character in this movie had their own quirks, their own story, their own fallouts, and, and the thing in the movie, it all kind of culminated, right, into where this grand kind of climax where all their quirks and their stories and everything led to their very salvation in the movie, where at the end of the movie, it ends with a question of a boy looking up and saying to his father, Dad, does somebody save us? And his dad looked at all the, what he knew could not be coincidences, and he says, yes, somebody did save us. So it even captures our imagination to think about us being involved in a bigger story, being involved in something much larger than ourselves. I quote these things from the newspapers and secular philosophers and movies to show, right, this intuitive desire inside of us all that we want to live life. If we live life only for ourselves, we would eventually lose purpose. If we had a life in which our actions only represented our self-interest, we would eventually destroy not only ourselves, but those around us. Intuitively, we all know that there is a meaning and purpose in life that extends beyond ourselves. People get a tinge of this when they're involved in teams and sports teams or volunteer community efforts, actions that uh, involve the community and um, Maybe they bring no personal benefit to themselves, but they're only, you know, doing it for the sake of other people. And you get glimpses of it, right? But when you explore this in the, in the secular world, you know, in the world that is um, doing these things minus uh, the uh, understanding of a God, or especially a, a revelation of Jesus Christ, I, I, I looked at all these examples and I was trying to figure out, like, why are they doing this? Like, do they ever give a reason why? It's, we can recognize that 
the desire is there, but the question remains, why is the desire there? And why do we want to do things for the greater good? Or why do we want to be involved in something bigger than ourselves? You can't, there's never really an answer from our culture. It's always these vague kind of spiritual, you know, uh, junk drawer kind of words they throw out there and you'll be happy if you do it and it's, it's good for our happiness. don't really have an answer because the idea of God, right, has been actually rejected in our society. John Piper once made this statement. It's pretty famous now. He said, standing before the Grand Canyon and contemplating your own greatness is pathological. It's insane. Why is this? Because we're standing in something that large and that huge and that big, you begin to feel small, right? And I'm going to look into the Christian understanding of why we want to be a part of something larger. Like, when we're standing in front of something so grand as the Grand Canyon, called the Grand Canyon for a reason, right? You feel yourself shrinking. But the thing about when you feel yourself shrinking is it actually feels good, right? It feels good to want to feel small, when you're standing before something that big. You feel at home there, as if you want to stay there. You don't want to leave. You just want to sit there. I mean, people go, if you go to the beaches anywhere around here on, you know, a Saturday morning, and the sun is a nice, clear day, the sun is rising, you'll see people everywhere watching the sunrise. Why? Because they start feeling small. They feel tiny, and it feels good to feel small. If we stand there, contemplating long enough, all it takes is a mere glimpse up to the stars to realize that even our earth is a speck of dust in our galaxy, and our galaxy is but a speck of dust, of dust in innumerable galaxies in our universe. And then here we are inside of this tiny earth in our tiny galaxy in this massive, incomprehensible universe. And this is where, if we are quiet enough, we will realize that we are indeed a part of something bigger. And in moments like that, we ask, why are we here? How do we get here? What is our purpose and meaning in life? And those questions continue to go. And so I'm proposing in this story, as we look, that the story is not just about Paul, it's not about Silas, but there's a much larger story happening, and that something, this earthquake happens, we're going to look at two in a minute, and everybody kind of becomes aware, like, something else is happening here. I'm not sitting here by accident. I didn't just arrive here. God has something in mind, not just for Paul and Silas, but for everybody in that jail and for the whole city, all right? But this thought that we are part of a grand narrative, actually guided by God himself, is completely against the grain of culture and its proposed worldview. Our Western world and its abandonment of truth has been working for centuries to chip away at any meaning of tomorrow. To remove truth, listen to this, is to reduce truth to our emotions. There's nothing left to define anything other than left of how you feel about something. And this is the culture we live in. It's called emotivism. And it cancels out any possibility that you and I are part of a grander narrative involving a loving creator God, much less a God who became incarnate in this world and died for our sins. It makes life be all about the moment. If tomorrow has no meaning, what has meaning? The moment. And so that's when you hear the, all the phrases, you only live once, so enjoy the moment, you know, live for the moment. And that's kind of the irreducible complexities of life. It becomes just about today because tomorrow's meaningless. Yesterday, uh, there's no meaning there either. Just enjoy the moment. And that's 
where our culture lands. And inside of us, we know as Christians, obviously as Christians, but I think beyond just being Christians in our culture, there's something that says, no, that can't be true. And as we'll see in this passage, I'll argue that all these people did indeed see this. And it was done and brought to revelation through the spreading of the message of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. The good news of the gospel being spread is when we often see this take place in the lives of people. So again, the story as we read through it one more time, as we, as we walk through this, is not going to be about Paul or Silas, but rather about God's actions and a bunch of different people's lives. So let's kind of look at this from 30,000 feet, and let's dig into these verses. So verse 25, I want to I set us up before how we get to verse 25. Right last week you had, we had Paul who was sent out again on a, his second missionary journey. He goes to some regions and the Spirit kind of says, no, nah, this is not the right place to do ministry. It says that he didn't allow Paul to speak, didn't allow Paul to go and start planting churches and ministering. And then he had a dream, right? The dream was a man from Macedonia saying, Paul, come over here, come preach over here. And so Paul says, yeah, sign from God, let's go. So he runs, goes to Macedonia. He goes and starts preaching the gospel. You have Lydia, who's converted along with her house. You had the demon-possessed girl running around, uh, chasing Paul for many days, saying, these men are servants from the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And Paul gets annoyed, casts this demon out of her. She was uh, you know, owned by people, and they were making money off of her. And so they flipped out because they said, geez, you just destroyed our economy. We have no way of making money. So they dragged Paul before the magistrates of the city and said, these guys are disrupting the city. They're saying we should break the law, the Roman law and customs, et cetera, and so forth. A riot kind of mob kind of comes about. And the magistrates is like, yeah, beat him up. And the crowd's like, yeah, beat him up. And so they beat him with rods and they toss him in prison. They're handcuffed. Their bats are all destroyed and beat up. And this is where we are in verse 25. Things are looking pretty grim for Paul, but God has something crazy in mind here. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, it's midnight. They should have been sleeping. Obviously, they probably can't sleep. Their back is raw with wounds. It's the same day, the same 24-hour cycle here, right? Because he addresses it's midnight, so this happened just a few, how many hours before, they were thrown in jail and beat. So same day, they're probably exhausted, they're tired, their backs are raw, they're probably, you know, uh, fettered to the walls in such a way they can't even, you know, sit up in a, any comfortable way. And they've chosen to sing, sing hymns. The hymns they were singing were probably psalms put to music, right? So they were singing about the greatness of God. And the prisoners around them, the Greek word there for listening means, like, carefully, slowly, attentively just listening to everything that they were saying. I mean, they were amazed. What do they have to sing about? I mean, look at them. They're a bloody mess. They're hanging from the wall, right? What in the world do they have to sing about? You'd imagine these prisoners are pretty blown away at what is going on when suddenly, in verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. This is where we have to read a story slowly. When you're reading the scriptures and you look at verses like this, you can't just read through it quickly because we, we would be accustomed to read that verse and to say, all right, so Paul and Silas, now they're free. Slow down and look. Look at what was just said. There was a great earthquake. The foundations were shaken 
and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Not just Paul, not just Silas. Every prisoner in there were suddenly free. So as God is working here, Paul and Silas is just the mere catalyst for God having something in mind for everybody in that prison cell. I would imagine at the moment when the earthquake hits, and this is a region where earthquakes were pretty common. Eventually Philippi was completely abandoned because earthquakes got so bad that the city was just always on fire and people were like, forget this place, we're leaving. So earthquakes were pretty common. This seems to be a pretty big one. The building didn't fall down, but still big enough to kind of like, oh, this is really bad. But as it happened, you, you just got to put yourselves in the shoes of those prisoners sitting there. They're hearing these guys singing about the greatness of God and joyfully singing. Earthquake happens and suddenly your prison door cell is wide open and you're free. You got to be thinking, what in the world is going on? Like, what is happening? You look around and notice everybody else is in the room. is sitting there looking at their hands saying, we're free. What is going on? And of course they would look at these guys and they would say, was this because of them? Like, what is, what's going on? So you can venture to say, continue on, the jailer was freaked out. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. They say that in Roman law, if you were a jailer and under your watch, the prisoners got set free, you would undergo the same punishment that they were to bear. He was probably looking at the the complete shame of being publicly executed and said, I would rather die myself. The prisoners there probably had a death sentence. That's what we can say. And so he saw that and said, you know, I'd just rather end things now. I mean, he just assumed, surely they're all ran away, right? I mean, if you were in a jail and suddenly everybody's door is open, you would assume they're all, they're all gone, they're all skedaddled. But listen, Paul, skedaddled, sorry. It's my southern, southernness coming out. But Paul cried, you guys know what that word means? Does that have meaning up here? Never mind. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. They stayed. And again, when you're reading the scriptures, ask questions. Why would the prisoners stay? It's fascinating, right? They had a death sentence, probably. They should have got up and just ran as fast as they could into the darkness and said, We're gone, we're free. They stayed. God is doing something in these lives of the people here. Right? He's working. There must be something in our hearts for saying, I want to stay and watch and be involved in this because obviously this is involving me. Like this has something in mind.
fine, I'll just use this. You can assume that they never forgot what happened that day. And so now we, we, we look at the jailer, and he continues on to a radical conversion, right? And so they preach the gospel to him, and then he takes them into their house. Now, remember, this is like a 24-hour cycle. This is probably, I don't know, say 1 a.m. at this point. I don't know. He says, I'm going to take you out of the jail cell and take you into my house. I'm going to feed you. So just a minute ago, he was scared to death about his own execution from these men escaping. And now he says, no, please, I want to take you into my house and feed you and clothe you. And actually, listen to what he does. He says, he brought them into his house, set food before them. He rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. In verse 33, it says that he washed their wounds. Paul and Silas baptized him. His whole family believed. They all baptized his family. Suddenly, this man was a fearless man to say, I know I could probably die from taking these prisoners into my house and giving them hospitality, but I don't care anymore. I wanna, I'm just, just going to do this. I have no fear. I know the Lord Jesus now. So guys, come to my house. I'll wash your wounds, right? I'll feed you. I'll clothe you. And it's 2 a.m. and it's 3 a.m. And Paul and Silas, you think of the day they had. I mean, they were just beat, arrested, thrown in jail. And less than 24 hours later, it's like 3 o'clock in the morning. And they're having dinner at the jailer's house, right? Getting like Band-Aids put on. And it's like, you can't imagine like, wow, what is going on? Like, this is crazy. Never would have saw this coming, right? And so... As we move on in the passage, right, I want, I want to note this kind of a side note. Gospel reconciliation can do the unthinkable, okay? Reconciling enemies to one another from one moment into the next. Think about that. I mean, the jailer was one of Paul's enemies at that point, and instantly the guy was loving Paul and serving him. The gospel always levels the playing field, right? It always levels the playing field. And so as we look on in the, re the remaining verses, Paul kind of has this ace in the hole. He probably had a plan all along when he's a Roman citizen. Roman citizens to be beaten without trial was clearly against the law. He let himself get beat. He was a Roman citizen, okay? So the whole time he knew, I, I can probably get out of jail whenever I want. I just got to say, hey, I'm actually a Roman citizen. You guys are the lawbreakers. And so as he did this, his goal was to, at the end of the passage, we see that they wanted to kind of come and release him quietly. And if you read, all right, so verse 16, listen to what they said. They said, um, verse 35, and when they, it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. The jailer told Paul saying, they want you to go in peace. And so something happened, these magistrates, heart change, something occurred and to where they said, I, we should let him go. Maybe they realized they screwed up. Maybe they realized they were the lawbreakers. I don't know what happened. We don't really know. But for some reason, they wanted to suddenly let Paul go. And that's when Paul says, hey, we're Roman citizens. Publicly bring us out. Paul had a plan in mind. He wanted the city to see the innocence of the church. He wanted to see that their message was indeed one of innocence. They weren't talking to people about breaking Roman customs. That was a false accusation. And so by publicly forcing them to bring him out, he's ensuring that the city is still going to be, um, have, have a good favor towards the church to know, oh, Paul's not the bad guy. Silas, those new Christians aren't the bad guys. It was the magistrates that messed up. They got wrapped up in the mob and the crowd. And so Paul gets released, right, and he visits Lydia. The whole city then has some kind of glimpse or picture of Christianity because of Paul's exiting, okay? 
And so he had that in mind, I'm sure, with hearing the gospel. And so he exits, and he visits Lydia. There's people now gathered in Lydia's homes, more converts, it looks like, which is the church was increasing during this time pretty quickly. And then um, he exits this departs. So, looking at some application from this sermon, okay, again, back to the grand narrative of things. When God is at work in your life, it is not only for your sake he is at work. Listen to this. It's not just for your sake, but he has others in mind. We are all connected to one another, especially in our church, our families, our neighbors. We are all connected to one another, and when God is at work in your life, in our individualistic society, we can just think about, oh, God, bless me. Thank you for blessing me. He does, yeah, sure, he has you in mind. He has his glory in mind first, right, through his son, through Jesus Christ, has his glory in mind first. He's not just working in your life for your sake. He has your family in mind. He has your neighbors in mind. He has this church in mind. He's active in your life, not for you alone. There is always, always something bigger happening that involves many other people. As we saw in this story, people who we would not have expected to be ministered to for God to do something to, he clearly did. The prisoners, right, they were in that prison. We had the whole city being forced to hear something about Paul's exit and seeing that he's innocent, right? And the church remained there. And we know that later Paul writes a book of the Bible to this church, and Philippi. So obviously it grew and grew and grew in time. We have this, the demonic slave girl earlier from last week who life was radically changed from what happened. God sent Paul there, not just to work in Paul's life, not just that one or two people be ministered to, but every, Paul, uh, God has such a grander vision in mind for everybody involved. So Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, he says, let your light shine before others that they may see it and give glory to God. I take that not as saying go and, you know, flout your, you know, wonderful things you do for Jesus. Like, I oh, won't believe what I did yesterday. Like, that's not what that verse is saying. I look at that verse as saying if God is working in your life and there's a light that is shining in you, don't hold that in. Like, place yourself in community with others. As you're around other people, my next my next point is to pray for opportunities to share the gospel. And this is why we must connect these dots. If God is working in your life, pray for opportunities to share that with other people, right? Believe and assume, just assume, presuppose that God has a grander picture in mind and he wants you to be a part of this. And the biggest way that we discover that, I don't know if you've seen this before, but it's happened to me, you know, enough times to where it always just amazes me is when, you know, I'm sitting and I'm, um, sharing the gospel with somebody or there's a time, you know, some kind of family event and somebody asks a question and about my faith or something or, you know, some opportunity I have just to tell people about Jesus. I've heard people respond and they say, you won't believe, I, I can't believe you're telling me this right now because yesterday you won't believe what happened, right? Or you won't, you know, you won't believe what happened last week. Like I, my whole life was before my eyes. I can't believe you're here. I feel like you're a messenger from God. When we're on mission, this is when we discover this grand picture more clearly. 
Because we see that God wants us to be on mission. His heart is for this world, as we heard earlier in the worship set, is to be reconciled to himself. That's what he wants. That's what he strives for. He's not returned yet because Peter says he wants more people to be reconciled to himself. He's not slow as if he's lazy, but he's gracious that he's slow. He wants more people to repent and to come to know him. And when we enter into that mission, when we put ourselves in the way of sharing the gospel with other people, you will begin getting glimpses of God's work in somebody else's life and realize, wow, I think I actually have a place in this. God is using me for this person's life or for this person's life. Mission is the quickest way we see that. John 17, verse 18 says, Jesus, Jesus praying to the fathers, you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And guys, we're on mission because Psalm 148 says this, kings of the earth and all peoples, prince and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above the earth and heaven. We want to see all peoples giving glory to our God, right? That is why we are on mission. I want to share this story because it's a simple story. This is not, Alex was like, you shouldn't, maybe you shouldn't share this. I don't want to pat myself on the back. But it's, not, it's a silly kind of thing that we did. But just listen to this. All right, so Christmas, um, I have neighbors coming from the south to the north um, 10 years ago. One thing is your neighbors here just, they don't really want to come out of their house or talk to you. Like, I've lived next to the same people. This one house down the street from me, I've been there for three, four years now. I've never seen anybody come out of the house. I'm like, who lives there? I don't even know who lives there. I'd like to meet them, but, you know. But anyway, so... We try to look for yearly opportunities to walk around our neighborhood and get to know our neighbors. And so Christmas time, we cooked cookies, and we just put in some Bible verses that explain the gospel, and we just want to go hand out Christmas cookies with a few Bible verses. And that was really it. The kids had a blast. We, we got to meet some of our neighbors and met another Christian in the neighborhood, which was really great. One woman, like, was scared of us for some reason. Like, my little kids are so, you know, scary. She was like, I'm going to open the door. But we go to this one woman's house. And we hand her cookies, and she's like, I don't have any money. We're like, we're just, it's just Christmas cookies, Merry Christmas. And we leave, and we're walking home. And this car, like, kind of zooms by us and stops, and she's crying. And she's like, you won't believe what this did for me today. Because, are you Christians? And we said, yes. And she was like, I feel like you're an angels. You won't believe. I just thank you. And she just drove back to her house. And I was like, we just handed her cookies. That's all we did. God was obviously at work in her life. I've talked to her a couple of times since then. We just handed her cookies. That's all that it took. But we don't know what God is doing in somebody's life. Simple actions to be on mission in the simplest ways. You will see God's work in grand ways. So I'm calling and hearkening us just to reach out and to love others and share the good news. You will see that there is indeed, you have a place in a much bigger story and in our closing um, two more things. Seek a life of less distraction and more awareness of your days. We are being served. As we're talking about this, I asked the question, you know, what, what are the things that keep us, that keeps us off mission? What are the things that, you know, keeps us in our house, that keeps us kind of cozied up and, and not sticking our necks out for the advancement of the gospel? I'm just as guilty of this as anybody else, but we live in a culture that loves to just occupy our time with distraction after distraction. As technology advances in our country, 
it actually advances by wanting to give us more distractions in life. You wonder, uh, what is the goal of uh, our technology? It's supposed to be to further mankind. It seems to be just busying us up more and more and more. You and I can get wrapped up in this, right? As Christians, we do consent to the reality that God is working on a grand scale and that he indeed is using us all, but too often we don't live as if this is the case. And I'm talking to myself. I'm a guilty in this. Our habits in life often do not reflect this. How we spend our downtime in our culture does not reflect this. If we know these things to be true, then it means that our, our moments and our days, uh, the, our time is crucial. It means something. There's purpose in our time if we know that we are going to be used by God to, the, to advance his glory in this earth. It means that our time is precious. It means that we have the opportunity to use our time for this, but our life is full of gadgets and technology that can often just leave us scrolling on stupid YouTube videos. Trust me, I used to be the king of finding the dumbest YouTube video in the world. Like, I've been distracted that way, right? But it can occupy our time, movies, News, the social media, all this stuff. I'm just bringing this up to say, question how much time we're on these things. Just to sit and think and pray. Think of your neighbors. Think of those family that want to know the gospel. Maybe peel yourself off of the screen sometimes and just say, God, I, I just want to sit here and pray for people. Stir up in my heart a desire to be on mission and not to have so many hours of my week distracted by technology. And in closing, when we read Stories like this. These stories, the authors wrote, not just as an historical account, not just to say, hey, here's what happened. God did this. Very good. Move on. I mean, when we read history books, you know, like textbooks, that's kind of just for information's sake. The Bible is not, is not here for information's sake. We read narratives. They want us to put ourselves inside of the story to say, what if I was Paul? What if I was one of those prisoners? What if I lived in the, in the Philippi and I saw and heard about these things? How would I feel? How would I react? What can I learn from this? And so I want to say that this story, it seems grand. There's some supernatural activities involved, but it could be our story. If we put our necks out for the kingdom, something this grand and seemingly amazing could indeed be our story. I want to hear from you guys about God's work in your life on this kind of scale. And I can tell you it's going to happen if you pray for opportunities to share. I always tell people, be careful when you pray for that. You'll get it. If you're not ready for it, then pray to be ready for it. Because if you pray, God, give me opportunity, he'll say, okay, here you go. It will happen. I guarantee it. I promise you. It's going to happen. And when we do that, I can say that these seemingly amazing things that happen to Paul, it can happen to us. It can't, you can find yourself wrapped up in something so big and wonderful that Paul realized that he was. That can happen to us. This story can be our story. And I pray that for Redeemer Fellowship, that in our cities, we can see God do such grand things as to reach the lost. And maybe he'll even use us and do the supernatural and do amazing things to see his glory spread throughout this world. You do have purpose. You do have meaning in this. I pray you are encouraged by this this morning. So let us, let us pray. Jesus, thank you for um, these truths, Lord. Thank you that you are the fulfillment, Lord, of our desires for something bigger and greater than ourselves. Thank you that we are um, right in the middle of this, Lord, even now through the relationships in this room. 
through our church. You are doing something um, in the lives of people now that we all have a part in, Lord. You, you gave us a story. This isn't a story about Paul or Silas. It's about you and your work, Lord. I pray that we, you would make us aware of your work or that we may have more time to sit and to ponder and to think and to consider your work in our lives and others, that we may be in it and see it furthered for your glory. Thank you for your scriptures, Lord, and what they can teach us. May we hear of stories in Redeemer Fellowship that's like this story we heard today, that many who do not know you would come to know you for the very first time. And Jesus, I pray if right now anybody in this room is on the fence of, of wanting to look at Christ and say, I, I need you as my Lord and Savior, would today be this day? Lord, today be the day of humbling, Lord, in salvation before you. We pray this in your name. Amen.